Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 252. So my way of being successful was doing everything that they couldn't or wouldn't do. And so that's it. Don't do what other people can do. Do what they don't do. That's what drives Jalopnik. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah! Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's special guest, Matt Hardigree. Matt, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am buckled in. I've got my helmet on. I've got a drink with me, so we should be good to go. I love it when my guests show up ready. That's awesome. Matt Hardigree is a writer and car journalist who frequently reminds people he's from Texas, even though he currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. As executive director of Jalopnik, Gawker Media's automotive site, he oversees a large staff dedicated to entertaining and occasionally informing the biggest and most enthusiastic audience of young car fans in the world. Matt frequently appears on CNN, ABC News, the BBC, Bloomberg, Fox News, Marketplace, and other outlets to provide his expertise on a variety of topics. Before his seven years as a writer and editor at Jalopnik, Matt worked as a political consultant and speechwriter for campaigns around the country, and he's also an award-winning playwright and a chili cook. Very interesting. So, Matt, I've told our listeners just a little about you Would you take a moment and share some more about your career, your interests, and, of course, your passion for automobiles? Absolutely. Uh, And that's that's a great intro. A lot of things going on there. I I think what most people I want them to know about me uh, is that I'm just someone who loves to write. Um, I've always uh, loved writing. I've always loved the sound of my own voice. Um, So (laughs) publishing was a pretty good outlet for me. And the cars thing is, is just sort of always been in the background. I grew up in Corpus Christi, but then moved to Houston. Actually, this is like a great car story. My mom, I didn't hear this until I was much older. Uh, My mom looked around Corpus Christi, Texas and said, you know, I don't see a lot of economic opportunity here. It was the late 80s. Um, the SNL crisis had just hit, and it hit Texas pretty hard as well as the small oil crisis. Ah. And so when prices had dropped, so she's like, I don't see opportunity here. No cell phones or anything. She left a note for my dad. 
packed us up in the car and moved me to Houston. Oh where my, my gosh. Lived. <laughs> and, and just in a day, so my dad gets home from work because he sold, uh, sold electrical parts. <laughs> and so he, he gets home and he just sees a note saying, I moved to Houston. Oh, like, wow. please sell the house and move with me. And so my dad, to his eternal credit, because I never heard anything, they, they're still married, <laughs> did it and went along with it. I think probably agreed and probably realized that was uh, a thing. So we moved to, to a, a suburb of Houston that was a affluent suburb of Houston that we could not really afford to live in. So I lived with my grandpa for a while. Um, and I with my grandparents for a while and mm-hmm. moved into an, a little apartment complex there. Uh, and actually that was great. Um, and as a kid, you don't really know that like, you know, you're, you're eventually you grow up and you learn that there are people who have more money than you and less money than you. But like, it didn't really strike me. I just thought I had kind of a kind of charmed great life. Sure. And, uh, living for that year with my grandparents, my grandpa would take me to car shows. He would take me to fire stations to look at fire trucks. He would take me to the airport to look at airport vehicles. This is pre 9-11. You could practically walk onto the tarmac. So I, I really got a love of sort of big machines and and machinery there. Uh, and then we moved into this apartment complex. One of my downstairs neighbors was retired. He was an older gentleman. And his son was a dentist. And, and dentists will probably be the last people on earth to still buy car magazines. <laughs> uh, and so he, when the, the, the magazines would be done at the dentist, they would then go to his grandpa who are his father mm-hmm. um, and bring them to me. So I, I had this amazing collection of like six month old car mags and I read them all cover to cover, try to memorize all the stats and everything, you know, what the displacement was and the horsepower for like a, you know, 1996 Nissan 300ZX or whatever. <laughs> so I knew everything about cars that were at least six months old. And so that's sort of how I grew up. And then I, you know, I went to, to college, University of Texas, thought I was going to be a playwright or a political consultant. I did some playwriting and had some success. And, and, and as, you know, as a younger playwright, there are a lot of op- you know, op- opportunities and competitions. So I've, I had works produced, mostly kind of romantic comedy kind of things. Cool. And then I went on to do political consulting, moved to Chicago with my, my, my then girlfriend, now wife, because uh, she did Teach for America, did politics more full time there. Decided I hated politics uh, and was lucky enough that Jalopnik, then at the time only like three people, a very small site, Mm -hmm. um, needed help for the auto show. And they said they needed somebody with a DSLR camera to be an intern, i.e. they didn't want to pay a photographer to shoot. <laughs> so I lied. And I said, I, I, I emailed them and I said, I have a digital camera, I'll do it. Yeah. And that was two lies. Because one, a digital camera is not a DSLR. I actually had a crappy digital camera. And it wasn't even my digital camera. It was my <laughs> girlfriend's. So I kind of borrowed it from her. Showed up the day of the show. They got me my press credentials and everything. They took one look at my camera and they were like, what have we done? Yeah, who is this guy? <laughs> this camera is worse than our camera. It was like some terrible like three megapixel Kodak thing. <laughs> so they were like, well, we already got you the press pass. What are we going to do? I'm like, I can write. Just give me two days to prove I can write. Yeah. So they're like, fine. I did. They hired me. I did the job for a while, went then and did a political job full time because they got an offer at a really nice firm doing work that I really wanted to do. And every day that I did the political work, I just wished I was writing about cars. So I quit that, <laughs> went back to Jalopnik full time and have been here ever since. And that was like seven and a half years ago. Very cool. I love that story in so many ways. And the biggest part of it is you went back to where your passion lay, and that was with cars. But <laughs> I love the DSLR story. That's fantastic. As we continue on your journey, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So Matt, take the wheel. Absolutely. This one was easy because this is what guides everything that I do and everything Jalopnik does. Uh, I was lucky enough when I was at the University of Texas to have, uh, as a professor, a guy who, uh, Ramirezberg, Professor Ramirezberg, uh, who's a, an expert on film. And as one of his students, one of his students was this guy named Robert Rodriguez, who we all know now, did the Spy Kids movies, did Desperado, was a very successful filmmaker, has a new show that's coming out on NBC. Um, and what he did was, during spring break one year, 
he took $5,000 that he managed to scrape together, go, and he went down to Mexico, and he shot a film that was Spanish language um, that was originally, which was, it was called Desperado now, or sorry, it's called El Mariachi, but it became the movie Desperado with Antonio Banderas oh, when okay. they made the Hollywood version of it. Mm-hmm. And so for $5,000, he made this film. It was a huge success in, in Mexico and in the U.S. because it's a huge Spanish language audience. And so everyone was interviewing him afterwards and, and, and asking him about it. Um, and, he, and he came to class and he, and he told this quote and he said, everyone asked, how did you do this? How did you beat Hollywood to this thing, this market? <laughs> how did you do it? And he said, I did it because I couldn't beat Hollywood. I couldn't do what they did. I couldn't make a Titanic. I didn't have the money or the resources to do anything that they did. So my way of being successful was doing everything that they couldn't or wouldn't do. And Mm. so that's it. Don't do what other people can do. Do what they don't do. That's what drives Jalopnik. We do things very differently. And what we found is we've been able to get a bigger audience in a lot of ways by by doing something different. Because there are all these people competing to get their best version of the same review of a new Corvette. And so we couldn't afford to originally, and we didn't have the resources to compete that way. Mm-hmm. So we had to find other ways to do it. And what ended up happening is, is that there are sort of in a lot of stories, there's two versions of that story. There's, there's the Jalopnik story, and there's a story that everybody else does. Um, so that's, that's sort of my inspiration. That's sort of what's guided me. You know, I love that. And uh, to talk about a Hollywood, there's a, a great quote by Arnold Schwarzenegger that said, uh, in order to be famous... And I might be paraphrasing here, but in order to be famous or be successful, you got to break the rules. Just don't break the law. And it sounds like that's what you've done with Jalopnik. You've kind of broken the rules everybody has set up for the standard in the automotive world and approached it from a totally different angle. Yeah, absolutely. I like, here's a great example. So there's this system called the embargo system, which I don't want to get into all the details of. But sort of out of the days of magazine and, and sort of actually kind of our fault because of the, the, the you know, online system that, that sort of come up with blogs. You know, before they used to give everyone the information a month ahead of time and say, we're not going to share it until, like, if we got it all on April 1st, you can't share it until May 1st. Mm-hmm. But when everyone has magazine, that's, magazines, that's fine. What ended up happening is Auto Week came along. And mm-hmm. Auto Week came out every week. Yep. So it sort of, you know, disrupted that, as we everyone likes to use the term disrupted. So they disrupted the magazine system. So then they said, well, we have to be very careful about how we do these embargoes. They got stricter. They got tougher. And then websites came along. Mm-hmm. And websites then would get information. It would be the day of. They could post it immediately. And so this caused a lot more service and a lot more, you know, problems. So instead of just getting rid of the embargo system, they've tried to make it stricter and stricter and stricter. Well, it's the internet age. Everything leaks. Everything gets out. So we were having to deal with this. And I was getting tired of having to call people and say, hey, I don't want to be a part of your embargo. Like, like, I'm sorry, but like some Russian website leaked your photos. Like, we're not going <laughs> to abide by an embargo because they're out on the Internet. And, and yeah. the Internet in Russia is just as accessible in Santa Monica as it is in St. Petersburg. <laughs> so we just decided we're like, you know what? We're not going to do the embargo thing anymore. We won't agree to embargoes, which isn't to say that we're going to break embargoes. It's just that I'm not going to agree to hold information. I'm a journalist. My job is to try to get information, not to have it given to me and then wait for a manufacturer to tell me when it is okay to do it. Right. So what's ended up happening is we've had all of these huge scoops. Um, for instance, when the new Corvette came out, we were able to show Roden Track's cover. Roden Track was still bound by a, uh, by a <laughs> this is so ridiculous, <laughs> bound by an embargo. They couldn't show their own cover of their own magazine with photos of the car wow. for like two and a half days. Oh. And so just by not playing, by, by just agreeing to not, not, you know, just not play by their game. It's yeah. like war games, right? With, you know, like the only way to win is to not play. Like with the embargo system, we realize the only way to win is not to play. Sure. Uh, and it's been a huge success. We've been, we've been very successful just because we've said, no, we won't do that. Everyone else does that. Let's do something differently. I love that. Absolutely spectacular. Would you share a story with me that instigated your passion for cars? You talk about those wonderful days with your grandfather going to car shows, being around machinery. But is there a pivotal moment in your life when you can remember that you knew you were a car guy? 
Absolutely. I had a, uh, and we'll probably talk about this car a little bit later, but I had a, a cream mustard yellow uh, 1978 Mercedes 300D. my first car. Ah. So diesel, kind of a cool looking car. Yeah, a tank. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, a tank. And it has the tank engine to match. It's, it's, it's very slow. <laughs> and uh, we'd gotten it off of an old, my grandmother's German, and she had another friend. I don't even really remember that well, but she was another old German lady. And so, you know, we got the car for a song. It had, you know, ridiculous amount of miles on it, but, you know, I could afford it, right? So I, I bought it and drove it around. My dad and I worked on it a little bit. And, you know, people work on cars, and that doesn't always make you a car person. But I, I saw it, and it was, it, was, it was fun. I liked getting under the hood. One day I was driving that thing home from high school, and my dad had drained the radiator and drained all the coolant out of the car before I had taken it off. And he hadn't told me. He had meant to tell me to take his car to work to school that day. Mm-hmm. So it's a hot Houston day, but you know, morning it's not too bad. So I drive to school, no problems. I'm driving home. The thing has no coolant in it. It has, you know, probably like a like a, a, a thimbles full. So of <laughs> course it's overheating, it's blowing up. I get to the bank, because like, this is the nearest place to pull over. I know the car is like about to die on me. I pull it over, I open the hood. I see that it, it maybe is a little bit low on coolant. So instead of doing what any other person should do and just keep the cap on, no. I start to unlock the cap. I start oh, no. to twist the cap off. Oh, no. like, and I was smart. I grabbed like a, like I'm not completely dumb. <laughs> but I grab a, so I grab a towel, like I had a cloth in there to like wipe it off. So I started to open it and then it clicked about halfway through what I was doing. Yeah. So I was like, oh no. Ah. So I duck, the thing fires up into the hood Dents the hood and falls back down. Yep. Of course, the, the steam comes pouring out. So I'm sweaty. I'm gross. It's, it's Texas. It's 100 degrees outside. It's <laughs> humid. The thing's grown apart. The thing blew up on me. And I walk inside, and they're like, I look terrible. So the people at the bank are like, you're okay. I kind of explain what happens. They're like, yeah, do you want water? And I'm like, yeah, of course I want water. So they give me like a big thing of water. <laughs> I walk outside, pour it in the car. And they're like, no, 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 idiot. We got the water for you. You look like you're about to pass out. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I should probably also have some water. Maybe so. Maybe so. And at that point, I was like, I chose the car over me. Maybe this car thing is for real. Yeah, I think it is. Absolutely. <laughs> That's hilarious. Matt, what I'd love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and have you share with us a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced along the way in your career. But the most important part of this question has to do with how did you overcome that situation? And more importantly, what did you learn from it? Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking about this. There have been a lot of challenges. We are sort of disruptive in our space. Like you mentioned, we do things differently. And, and so and I sort of mentioned in it, um, there are some people who do not like us. Uh, so sometimes the challenge is there are just people who are very unhappy that Jalopnik exists and have reminded mm-hmm. us of that on, on multiple occasions. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking about the, the site and, and I think that a, a, I want car culture to survive and I want it to live on. And I think one of the problems we have is that we only present in the media a range of young to old white males essentially mm-hmm. and and we all know people who are who are not that who who wrench on cars who deal with cars with other women or black or Latino, whatever mm-hmm. um but they don't they don't get presented in the media so i was talking with someone who's actually a woman in the, the automotive industry about this and and her point was they're, they're harder to find so you have to you know they don't necessarily exist you have to you train them up because otherwise and this happens a lot in our industry and part of this is true you know if, if someone's interested they're told to do pr or they're told to to go on camera that there's just or they're told to go into like the traditional straight you know news media so there, there are a lot of great reporters you know, a lot of great women reporters writing for reuters and bloomberg and detroit news mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily mode and track motor trend or car and driver road and track or anything right, right so i kind of took that to be okay maybe that's the case got to find people build it up but then 
my wife told me I was an idiot because she was since she was right, <laughs> and she said the the problem is that you only hang out with your friends. You only hang out with the same group of, of reporters and writers who are all essentially you know a monochromatic um, young to medium old white men, and sure. so you're never going to find anyone else. Look a little bit outside of your tiny group, and you might be surprised what you find. Mm. And she was one hundred percent right. And I I'd, so uh, what I had perceived as a challenge because it was a challenging environment, I was wrong. I was just not looking in the right places. And I just had a very narrow view and it accepted the idea that you had to sort of train and create these people and that they didn't just already exist. And so um, it's been hugely beneficial. We found great, great people who had otherwise probably not been looked at or passed over. Um, I think three of the last four people we've hired have been women. And not because we're like saying we were going to only hire women, but it's just that we opened up and broadened our, our, our horizon sort of and, and looked elsewhere. Um, and we found all these great people who had been overlooked or, or, or somehow missed in the, the industry. Um, like Steph Schrader is a great example. She's our motorsports reporter and runs our motorsports blog, Black Flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's awesome. She's an amateur racer. She knows everything. She's a great writer. Um, and she's someone who kind of found us in a lot of ways. Um, and it was just sort of in a, in, a, in a different group of amateur racing that we hadn't really looked to, um, but represents a sort of my more diverse, a more accurate, not even more, just more accurate look at the automotive landscape and who actually likes cars. Um, so that was, like a, and that was a challenge and it was a kind of a, a big moment, aha moment, where I was like, yes, of course, I sh- I'm an idiot. I should look elsewhere. <laughs> I, you know, I love that in so many ways. The same thing here with cars, yeah, when I've been out looking for guests. In the early days, everybody I was finding was, again, kind of that white, middle-aged, older male. And I started finding women. And I think what you found probably it, with Dilopnik and what I found is by having some women and or different people on the show, it starts to bring a different audience in. And that starts to round out the show better. And I think it makes for a much more interesting dynamic with your listener in my case or with your reader in your case. So I think that's fantastic. Can you talk about an aha moment? That was my next question for you. Was that your aha moment? That was one of my big ones. Absolutely. And it, it sort of fits into a long, larger thing, which is that, you know, and this this came about because of the millennial crisis. Like everyone's like millennials don't aren't interested in cars, whatever. But but Mark Royce, who's the, the president of GM in North America, and I are on the same page about this. And he said this many times. I'm really glad that someone gets this. Um, and, and Carl Henkel, who, who wrote for the Detroit News for a long time, has really made a case about this. And this was also kind of an aha moment for me, mm-hmm. which is that millennials do care about cars. Millennials will absolutely buy a car, and they love cars, just like women love cars, just like every people love cars. There are just other factors that have either made them, in the case of, of women writers, not found because they don't hang out in this like tiny group of, of male writers that exist. Or in the case of millennials buying cars, it's just that that they don't have money. Like they have student loans. Like when they get money, they'll start buying cars. And now, if you look, I mean, it's they're also a bigger generation right now. But but more millennials buy more cars than Generation X right now, mm. and that number is only going to grow. Um, and that's important because I care not just i don't just want more readers which of course i do because i'm not crazy i'm a publisher like that's what i want to do mm-hmm. i want car culture to survive i think car culture is a uniquely important american part of a unique part of american car american culture yep. and for car culture to survive we have to embrace people who are not just ourselves yeah absolutely well said i love that how about proudest moments i assume you've had many in your career but is there one in particular that stands out to you yeah, and this is something that's like, you know, I, 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 there are all sorts of great things. We've had big scoops. Um, we had, a, you know, Randy Lanier, who's the, this great race car driver who um, went to jail for 25 years because he was funding his race team by basically moving weed mm. um, across the marijuana, across the, uh, which sounds That was hilarious. a popular thing back in the 70s with a lot of racers as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was. And he was, he was in Miami, so he was just getting speedboats full of weed of course, from yeah. the Bahamas and taking it across. But he, um, that, getting that story when everyone else had been trying to, to hunt for it was a problem. 
proud moment, but actually it's a thing that, that, that's sort of probably invisible to most of the readers of the website. But for a while there, when I built it up, when it was just me and a few people, uh, United inherited it. It was obviously a site that existed before me, um, but it was a small group. And so when I would go away to do trips or vacation or whatever, the site would sort of stumble a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd see traffic go down, whatever, both because we were such a small group, losing someone had an impact, but also just because I carried a lot of stuff with me. And then one day I went away for a week and we did better, honestly, which should have been a scary moment. And it was a little <laughs> bit, but you know, to be successful at this, you know, you can either, especially now that we're, we've got 13 people and, and you know, tens of millions of views every month, you have to delegate or drown, basically. Mm-hmm. Like you have to trust people to do a good job. And I'm at a position now where I, I've got a, and that was the moment where I realized that a lot of people who did great work, a lot of them smarter than me, better writers, more talented. Um, and, and I was just proud that I had a team that could do such great work, didn't need the handholding, didn't need the oversight, just really amazing professionals. Um, and that was, nobody else saw that. Like I was the only one who was looking at those numbers and really saw that. I guess they kind of did a little bit, but like that was like a moment. It was like we built a, you know, it's, you can be very talented on your own, but like the only way to, to make it, to have a legacy is to build a machine that works. And that was the first moment where I was like, yes, I've built a machine that works. It's an entrepreneurial golden nugget you just dropped there because it's so important for people Working in a small business where they feel like they have to do it all is is to discover that point when they can let some of that go and hire the right people, build a good team around them, and uh, it works. So awesome. Let's have a little bit of fun here. What was your first really special vehicle? And if you could share a memory you had with that car, are you going to say it was that Mercedes that overheated? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was pretty special, although, you know, it was high school, so some of those moments may not be relatable on a family podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some of the best memories. Um, you know, actually, I had a, also, my the car that I, I took to college um, was uh, an old, my parents, actually, the first car they ever bought was a 1994 Escort completely stripper so it was it was like the pony package it had mm-hmm. rubbermaid plastic bumpers front and back <laughs> it had an ac because it's texas and it should be at least a le- if it's not it should be illegal to sell a car in, a- in texas yeah, you die an there <laughs> um but you're, it's not legal to have or it's not a legal requirement in texas or at least it wasn't at the time to have a right side mirror you only need two mirrors it says the, the laws you have to have two rear facing mirrors mm-hmm. which they meant to be a two mirrors on the side and then a, a mirror a rear view mirror what ford interpreted this as is a left side mirror and one mirror on top no radio anything like that manual transmission five-speed transmission but i you know it's their first new car like my parents had grown up with nothing but used cars so they were like like i think a lot of people and so they were really excited to have this new car but obviously i went to college 2001 this is seven years later they they moved on to a another escort um they <laughs> an identical one in 96 uh and then i think they went up to a nicer but still used um ford taurus and so i had this car and i took it to college but the thing is i'd learned to drive stick w- when i i was 16 but i kind of like i got a car with an automatic so i didn't really use the skills very often so i kind of had to relearn how to drive stick and it was basically the car that i had died so they're like well take the escort we'll get another one um so i grabbed the escort and i drove to to austin and austin is all hills and it's rainy and i'm used to driving in houston and so i basically had to sort of relearn to drive stick Uh, rainy hilly area and i thought i was gonna die um (laughs) but then after like a, a few days of driving around because it was either that or like go back into a cab or get, you know, T-boned by the million trucks and SUVs that drive around Austin and in Texas when you're in this like little tiny car. <laughs> I learned how to drive stick and I loved it. And I was like, I should have been driving stick the whole time. And that was a, just like a proud, happy moment of just driving around uh, all as much as I could afford gas for um, in this little tiny black. I didn't get a lot of dates because of the car, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it was not. fun. Yeah. <laughs> was that song slip slide in a way? <laughs> that was, that was me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, living here in the Northwest where it rains a lot and there are a lot of hills here 
I taught my son how to drive a stick shift in my uh, 1972 911S Porsche. And it was actually a good car to learn in because of the, where the car revs and where it needs to be. You know, he says to this day, he's so happy he learned both my daughter and my son learned how to drive stick shifts. And many of their friends do not. They just don't know how to drive stick shifts anymore. So it's a great, great thing to have in your uh, uh, attache of skills, I think. Is there a vehicle that you've sold that you really wish you could have back in your garage? Oh, man, the last car. So I moved to New York from Virginia. I was living there for a couple of years. I, actually, the car is kind of a weird history. It was, it was owned by a guy. It was a Mericor XR4TI. Oh. Um, so an exciting, exciting, exciting piece of metal, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the license plate was, so it was Bob Lutz was responsible for Mericor at the time for his brief period of time when he was at Ford. So my license plate said B. Lutz on it, <laughs> um, which I was really proud of. But, yeah, so the car was owned by a guy in Chicago who got like terminal brain cancer or so he thought it's like an uncurable brain cancer. Um, and then, and he fixed it all up and he went and made the like last payment in cash and he just like fixed the car up and drove it. Cause he thought he was going to die. Didn't one of the few people with this rare brain cancer to survive. So anyways, the car existed for a while. Wow. Um, and then top gear America was looking to do a, sh- a show on like cars that, that are kind of cult classics that should have been successes, but weren't. So it was like the Cadillac Elante and the Subaru SVX and the AmeriCorps XR4 TI. Mm-hmm. So they reached out to this company called Midwest AmeriCorps. Shout out to Midwest AmeriCorps uh, in Illinois who like fixes these cars up. And they're like, Hey, we kind of need a nice one, whatever. So they're like, Oh, this guy's actually thinking about selling it. And I think he would he would do it if he knew it would be on TV because the car is very important to him. So it's this beautiful kind of one owner car, very nicely nicely done. Goes out to California. Rutledge Tanner Faust is the one who drives it, but Rutledge uh, Wood, who's one of the hosts, is, is a buddy of mine, buys it, ships huh. it back to Atlanta. Wife takes one look at it, goes, "I don't get this car. We don't need this car." And he already has like a, like a garage full of cars, so he's he's a garage full of beater cars. <laughs> so he sends me a text message and he's like, "Hey, do you want the car? Yeah. Like, I know you like Mercurys. I know you were looking at it." I was like, "Yes, I do." So I went down, bought it. Had a welded diff. They welded the diff so they could do crazy burnouts with it. Oh wow! Car, it had been ruined to be on television. Television ruins cars. Yeah. Never let your you never lend your car to a TV show. No, or your house to a film crew. Or your house to a film crew. Just never anyone with a camera. Don't trust anyone. So <laughs> I get the car. Enjoy it, fix the diff, replace the diff, you know, just drive it around for a little while. Move to New York, no point in having the car. Thinking about selling it, not sure what I want to do. This kid reaches out to me, very nice. And his dad has a, a red Mercor. He wants as his first car a red Mercor to go along with his dad. So ah. he wants to fix it up. So I'm like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> I give it to him for what the money I put into it. The kid's on the internet. His name's Matt. He's a really, he's also named Matt. He's a really nice, really nice young man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he posts pictures of it all the time and he's fixed it up. So not only did the car go away, I'm constantly seeing it on social media. <laughs> he posts it on my own website. I cannot escape the car. Of course he so, does. <laughs> yeah. So like, I always want that car and I always see it. So well. I, I do kind of miss it. I'm glad it's, it's, it's better off this way. I would, it would have gotten abused here in New York. Honestly, like it, it's the, be- it, it ended up where it needed to end up. But it, it's it's just a it just it just just a little bit tweaks me every time I see it. <laughs> well, we're just caretakers of these vehicles, but uh, it's cool you're friends with Rutledge because I just connected with him and he's going to be an upcoming guest here on Cars. Yeah, so uh, uh, when he gets a chance to be on the show, we can talk a little bit about you. So, <laughs> how about current projects? Is there something you're working on right now there at Jalopnik that really has you excited and fired up? Yeah, so I recently went from being editor-in-chief to executive director. And executive director is a term that doesn't really mean anything. We picked a term vague enough to imply authority, but not actually what, what I actually do. Um, so we're launching um, mid-June mm-hmm. is the plan. Um, we're launching a video channel 
um, on YouTube uh, with uh, so youtube.com slash Jalopnik. We have a few videos up now. We're just sort of throwing up stuff that we're not going to put into episodes up on the page just because it's kind of fun or weird little stuff that happens to us. So we're going to uh, three new episodes every week. So of three shows uh, is the plan right now. So third in for a season and a season is going to be about a quarter. Uh, we've hired, I just spent more money than I can even imagine. More money than I probably spent on my last four cars on camera equipment today. Um, <laughs> hired a great editor, shooter, production people. Um, we're, and this sort of fits into the general Jalopnik thing, right? Do something different. We're not going to look like Motor 10 TV or like Drive. We're going to make shows that are very much in line with our values and our values are mostly being weird. So it'll be weird stuff. Um, <laughs> it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, I, I would suggest people, this is uh, May 20th, uh, so uh, people and uh, people come back in a, in a few weeks uh, to, to check it out. Um, I would also, I'm working, I worked on a show ages ago uh, for National Geographic called Driving America, which is a two-hour sort of documentary special that if you ever saw, if you saw the Neil deGrasse Tyson Cosmos uh, shows where they ah. sort of truck you through the history of the universe in seven episodes. Yes. Uh, we're doing that with cars. Uh, so it's a two-hour episode and we go from the Ford quadricycle, Henry Ford and his quadricycle, actually further back to that, to this, this steam-powered car that came out in the, the 18th century, um, all the way through to today's cars. Um, and it's great. It's a lot of people telling stories about their cars. Um, it's, it's sort of everything that you need. It's a sort of uh, five-inch deep view of car history uh, throughout the ages, and that'll be uh, May 25th um, at 7 o'clock, 8 Very o'clock. Cool. Check your Check your local listings, and, and that's great. A lot of other great journalists are in it. So that, that's the thing that I'm very proud of, Driving America. Check it out. Absolutely. Sounds fantastic. Now, here's a very introspective question for you, Matt. If Matt Hardigree was a car, what kind of car would he be and why? Absolutely. Thought a lot about this. Um, <laughs> I think, given what I'm doing now, I'd probably be um, a camera car. A camera so- car. I think I would be uh, a, like a. There's this company that has a Porsche Cayman with a, a what's called a Russian arm, which is a balancing camera arm. Oh so, yes, uh, yeah. Jeff Jeff Zwart, isn't he used that rig? Yeah, Zwart. Oh man, Zwart, my one of my really good He's friends. He's been also, a guest here on Cars. Yeah, Zwart, Zwart's great. Spike yet Spike on. Um, both judges actually last year for the Jalopnik Film Festival, which is. Another project that I'm really excited about. Uh, we could talk about that for hours, but uh, yeah. So I would I would be a camera car because I'm I'm at, at this point in my life I'm sort of behind the scenes. You don't see me integral integral part of any really great car film production. Anytime you've seen a car chase, it's there. Yep. You just never see it. So that's sort of I've been a lot uh, late. You know, before I've been a lot in front of the camera a lot, and I've been you know on the website a lot. I'm now writing a little bit less, and I'm more producing. So I'm kind of behind now. So I, I've cool. transitioned transitioned to that role. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Great. That's a unique one. You're the first camera car. <laughs> I love it. So, Matt, up next is the last lap, but before we put the pedal to the metal, here's a word from our Cars Yow sponsor. Award-winning author and designer Dwight Knowlton has done it again. His book, The Greatest Race, is now available. The Greatest Race is the story of Sir Sterling Moss's epic and record-crushing win of the 1955 Mille Miglia in the Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR. In collaboration with Sir Sterling Moss himself, Dwight has created a wonderful children's book from this epic race as a follow-up to his best-selling book, The Little Red Racing Car. I have my own copy of The Greatest Race, and I can tell you, this kid's impressed. Like his previous book, this one is printed in the USA. Check out Dwight's Carpe Viem brand, where you can find both of his books, shirts, and more that embrace his seize-the-road philosophy. Enjoy Carpe Viem at carpegear.com, and be sure to sign up for his newsletter while you're at his website. That's carpegear.com, 
C-A-R-P-E-Gear.com. All right, Matt, we're back and we're entering the last lap, and this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some really quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? Yes. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? Three toes and it goes. <laughs> now that's a first. I love that. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? Sure. Every morning, uh, if I can, if the weather's nice, I try to walk into work across the Williamsburg Bridge. Beautiful. Don't look at my phone. I don't think about anything that's happening that day or anything that happened in the past. I only think about things that are at least, you know, 48, four months, four years into the future. Fantastic. Get the blood flowing, the heart pumping, and the brain acting. That's great. Do you have a resource that you think the Carshaw listeners would really love, other than Jalopnik, of course? Uh, yeah, Jalopnik, you don't need it. Uh, bring, <laughs> uh, if, you, if you don't look at bringatrailer.com, mm. uh, you will lose the rest of your life because it is absolutely fantastic. Yes, uh, we've had Randy on the show here as well. And, uh, you know, darn it, every morning he sends me that thing and I find all the cars that I can't buy and it just drives me insane. I need it's, to turn it off. It's, it's the easiest way to go broke is reading that website, but it's great. I, it's such a great idea. I wish I'd have had it. Yeah, it's great. Now they're doing auctions and that's pretty oh, cool yeah. too. So all sorts of cool stuff. Would you share a book with our listeners that you think they would really enjoy reading? One of the best books I've read about understanding car culture in the U.S. is a book called The Big Roads uh, by a guy named Earl Swift. Mm. And it, it's the, we, we've all sort of been told this story that like Dwight Eisenhower built the interstate. Dwight Eisenhower is not a, not a road planner. Uh, it tells the story of uh, uh, all these amazing people, Tom McDonald, all these people who actually built the roads and planned it and the weird history of like why a highway started in Kansas, went to the Oklahoma border and just ended in a farm field. <laughs> uh, if you really want to understand urban sprawl, you really want to understand, we talk a little bit about this on driving America, but it really goes into depth about how the history of America can be understood uh, a little bit by the history of of the car. And to understand the car, you have to understand the roads. Uh, And it is just a really great read. He's a really great author. I highly recommend it. Well, fantastic. First time that book's been recommended here on Cars, yeah. So we'll make sure we add it to our library. Well, listeners, you can find links to all these great resources Matt has shared with us today at carsyad.com slash Matt Hardegree. And Matt's last name is H-A-R-D-I-G-R-E-E. All right, Matt, we're up to the checkered flag. This last question is going to be a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, but don't worry about the cost because today I'm going to write the check, what would that one vehicle be? But most importantly, why? Oh, God, I've gone through 67 of these um, (laughs) since I got the email with this question. I think ultimately um, I would probably go with a Tucker. A Tucker. Oh, you know, we just recently had Sean Tucker, Preston Tucker's great grandson on the show. Oh, that's great. I haven't listened to that one yet. No, I'm I'm a, a big fan of the car anyways. And, you know, actually, I, I thought it would be something weird. Like, my dream car is like an Escort RS Cosworth. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> like, I like all the Gran Turismo cars, so like mm-hmm. old Nissan Skylines and Subarus and stuff like that. Uh, I just think that it's it's a, the a approachable classic. It, it's got so much history and so much meaning, and there's just conspiracy theories. So as a journalist, the conspiracy theory around it sort of is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And there are just enough of them that I could drive it, and it wouldn't have to be a trailer queen. And I wouldn't like if I only had one of one kind of Ferrari GTO, I would I would still drive it, but I kind of feel bad about it. But like you can kind of drive a Tucker and get away with it because it's it's not it's not so rare that if your one car gets destroyed, it's like there are no more of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just beautiful, and there's so much. I think it's like. A good lesson right like he did a lot of things wrong um like tucker made a lot of mistakes the weird engine choices the you know there's this people ascribe this great conspiracy to like the big manufacturers trying to shut him down the reality was is he made a lot of errors but in all things you know i'm 
I'm hoping that I can make enough errors to get it right eventually. Um, and Tucker's <laughs> a reminder that that doesn't always happen. Yeah, the Tucker 48, great car. In fact, we had uh, Rob Ida, builder on the show as well. And Rob is building the Tucker Torpedo right now in conjunction with Sean Tucker. And they're building that car because that was a car that was designed but never created. And if you listen to the show with Sean, you'll find uh, all the challenges that they're coming up with because the car was designed but not really engineered. So (laughs) they've got some challenges ahead of them. I think that might be true of a lot of the Tucker vehicles, to be <laughs> honest. Uh, actually, you know, the great thing about the Tucker Torpedoes is the first, before McLaren did it with the F1. So my second my second yep. car was McLaren F1, because I'm not a crazy person. I want a McLaren F1. Uh, <laughs> Tucker Torpedo also has a center-mounted center um, steering wheel. You sit in the middle, which is what McLaren, what, what uh, uh, Gordon Murray did with the McLaren like 60 yes. years later, or 50 years later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, great choice. Matt, you've taken me on a great ride today. I knew you would, and I want to thank you for your stories. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Yow listeners and with me. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Tucker 48? Don't say no to things. If you have an opportunity, say yes. Uh, Anytime someone said, hey, do you want to drive this? Hey, do you want to go there? Even if I'm tired, even if I'm late, I've always been happy. I've ended up in gyro planes. I've ended up in weird concept cars in the streets of Manhattan. I've ended up stranded on the side of the road. But on balance, I've always been happier saying yes than no. Ah, great advice. And I appreciate the fact that you said yes to me today to be a guest here on Cars Yow. Yeah. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and Jalopnik? Absolutely. Just go to the website, jalopnik.com. Uh, we have a site, we have Lane Splitter, which is a site about motorcycles. We have Black Flag, which is a site about racing. We have uh, Truck Yow, which is obviously a site about trucks. We have Foxtrot Alpha, which is military. Flight Club, which is aviation. And we're adding a bunch of other uh, subsites. And of course, Buyer's Guide, if you want our advice for which car you should buy other than a diesel mound brown manual station wagon, uh, you can go to <laughs> buyersguide.jalopnik.com for all your car buying advice. Fantastic. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything Matt shared with us today at carsyad.com. Just put Matt in the search box. His show notes page will pop right up with all the links to Jalopnik and all these different sites he shared with us. Matt, thank you for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with the listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks for having me on. Great talking to you. Can't wait to hear it. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!